Good evening. It's good to see everyone back out this evening, and uh, I hope everyone had a wonderful day, and what a great time to be able to come back together once again to uh, open up a portion of God's Word, to study from it, to sing these beautiful hymns uh, together with one another. Uh, I'd invite you to take your New Testaments out and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to read the first nine verses this evening. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain... An inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoiced, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Tonight I want to talk about what the real business is for us as Christians and the church. Um, Unfortunately, the real business, like the driving force, what's our end goal, what's the purpose, all of these things are completely misunderstood by the world and it's even misunderstood by those who profess to be Christians. So many people and of the world, they tend to think that churches and, uh, are established to resolve social and family and community problems. Sometimes they think that it's to solve the moral and ethical problems that goes on in the community. Sometimes, another way to put it, they think of themselves as a social services agency or a family life center. And while there are places for those types of things and there's avenues to try to get those things taken care of, we need to look back and see what it is that we need to be focused on. As a local church, what is the work? What are we trying to accomplish? And then as individual Christians, obviously, there are things in which we can branch out on and try to work on individually as 
our own selves. There are things that we can try to work on to help better the community. There's no doubt about that. But when we start layering on additional <clears throat> things, if you will, additional practices, or adding on new traditions on top of something that, well, you know, just to be honest with you, the church has enough to do with benevolence, with evangelism, and with edifying. There's enough work there to be had instead of already placing additional burdens on top of the church, things that we just don't see being established in the New Testament. And so I hope that our lesson this evening will will remind us of what our real business is as far as a local church is concerned and us as individual Christians. And and we need to realize there are times when we end up losing sight of what the business is of the church. And so our, our business, first and foremost, hopefully as individuals and as a collective group, is in the business of saving souls. We see there in verse 9. Look down to verse 9. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That is the goal of our faith. Is to take as many people to heaven as possible. And there's only one avenue in which we can do that. That is through Jesus. Uh, We're told, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. John 17, 17. We need to understand that this was the same principle and the same premise that Jesus and the apostles also had. Let's go back over to Matthew chapter 18. Let's look at Matthew 18 real quick. And we're going to start at verse 7. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet And be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was Lost. That was the goal and the principle of Jesus. It's also the goal and the principle of Jesus for and for the apostles, rather. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And drop all the way down to verse 33. Look at what Paul says here. He says, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. 
Jesus made it his business to save souls. Paul, as an apostle, he made it his business to save souls. Peter made it his business to save souls. And so that needs to be our business. That we need to be preaching the gospel in order to spread the gospel, in order so that people can understand that there is a way out of their sins. They don't have to live under that bondage and that slavery, which is what we talked about this morning. That does not have to be uh, the reality for them for the rest of their life. That they can have true freedom in Christ Jesus. They don't have to be living under a cloud. The cloud of doubt, the cloud of shame, the cloud of guilt for the rest of their lives. That is our business. It is to save the lost. It is to preach the gospel. Romans 10, 17, we know that. I quote it all the time. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of God. Go over to Romans chapter 1, though. Let's, let's look at Romans 1 real quick. <clears throat> And drop down to verse 15. Romans 1, verse 15. Paul says, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And so how does that come about? This comes about through the knowledge, through what is revealed to us in the Word of God. And so when we learn better, we do better. At least I I hope that's the case. And so the righteous man who lives by faith is very similar to all of the people that's listed throughout Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, right? We call that kind of the heroes of faith chapter. So think about Abraham. What did he do? When God went to him in Ur and he said, hey, move, (laughs) pick up and go, what did he do? He didn't say, oh God, I I, I know you can give me all this land. I know that you can give me everything you promised, so I'm just going to sit right here and I'm not going to do anything because you're already going to do it for me anyways. No, that wasn't Abraham's response. Abraham's response was, was he got up, he packed his things, he gathered all of his possessions and everything that he wanted to take with him, and he went. And everywhere he went, what did he do? He he made an altar, he pitched a tent, he made sacrifice. And through it all, through when God told him to be circumcised. Remember that? Genesis chapter 17. What did Abraham do? Abraham didn't say, well, God, you know, I don't really think I need to be circumcised because, because you know what, you, you can circumcise my heart anyways. You can see the circumcision of my heart. So I, I don't need to circumcise myself physically for you. I don't, I don't have to do that. Do you not realize that this is the same language that people utilize against the plan of salvation that Jesus provides, that the apostles provide? Why tarryest thou, rise, be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord? If you tell that to someone, most people say, oh, baptism doesn't wash away sins. 
like, okay, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. That's because of. It's like, guys. And one of their favorite verses in all of the book of Romans is in Romans chapter 4. Look at Romans 4. Just real quick, just turn just maybe a couple pages and look. Verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Well, Abraham didn't sit around and question the authority of God. He didn't sit around and question the Word of God when God told him something to do. He got up and did it. When God told him to, hey, go sacrifice your son, Abraham didn't say, oh, I don't, I don't need to do that. I don't have to do that because you're already going to provide the sacrifice anyways. That wasn't the attitude of Abraham. What did he do? He believed in God. He trusted in God. Because of that, he went through with it and he was going to sacrifice his son. And then the messenger of the Lord came and stopped him and says, For now I know. He stayed his hand. You see. What about Noah and the ark? When God went to him and said, Hey, you're going to have to build an ark because there's a flood coming and it's going to destroy everything. Noah didn't have the response of, Well, well you know, you can build it for me. That wasn't his response. And yet that's the response that most people have today in reference to the plan of salvation, in reference to the gospel message. You tell them, you read it word for word. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. They say, no, I'm saved already. I'm saved and then I'm baptized. It's like, guys, you are confused. You have been deceived by lies. You continue to perpetrate lies. Things that you cannot find in the New Testament. Things that, uh, attitudes and behaviors that you can't find of faithful people. Back in the Old Testament, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. He was made righteous because he truly believed. And because he believed and because he trusted in God, he obeyed God. There is no way you can disconnect faithfulness and obedience. You can't do it. When you begin to try to split hairs that way, go ahead and try to split hairs with God. And see how that works out for you in eternity. I'm sure Nadab and Abihu thought, oh, it's not that big of a deal for for us to offer up this kind of fire. What was it that they offered up? Strange fire. Unauthorized fire. What about Naaman? He wasn't cleansed until he did what? Until he did exactly what he was told to do. So as you can see, our business is to go out and preach the gospel to these people. To everybody. We don't get to become respecter of persons and show partiality and say, well, you're going to hear the gospel, but I don't really want to, I don't want to see you walk through the doors of the church. We don't do that. We preach the gospel, the unadulterated gospel, 
And we let the gospel do its work. I don't want to say do its magic. You know, that's kind of a thing that we say in our modern society. It's not magic. It's real, true power that God has provided for those who submit themselves to Him in faith, in humility, in humbleness. If we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, He will lift us up. So we preach the gospel. We preach repentance. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And this morning, I believe it was in Bible class. I mentioned the man at Corinth, which it starts in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the man has his father's wife and the congregation, they're just kind of prideful and arrogant about it. And so they're like, oh, no harm, no foul. It doesn't really bother us. They didn't really see a problem with it. And so Paul's like, no, no this is a problem. You need to get rid of this problem. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. <clears throat> And so because of his letter and his instructions and his rebuking of them, they end up withdrawing from that man. They said, you know, they, they put things in order and said, okay, this, this, things are changing now. So that man ends up repenting. So let's look here at the idea of what repentance is. And so when we preach the gospel, this is what we mean when we say Repentance. When we call people to repent, there is a there is such a drastic change in the life of that individual. So um, let's see here, verse eight, Second Corinthians seven, verse eight. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world... Produces death. One of the easiest way I know how to describe that is, is it, you know, most of us in here <clears throat> have children, have had children, have raised children. You ever caught your children doing something and then they just start immediately boohooing? We know that's not necessarily godly sorrow right there. <laughs> they're boohooing because they know that they're about to get in a lot of trouble. So they're boohooing because they got caught, right? That's the worldly kind of sorrow. And that's how the majority of the world, people who are carnally minded, those who are fleshly minded, that's how they think, okay? You know, there are spouses who are so bold to go out and cheat on their spouse, but as soon as that person gets caught, here comes the tears. Where were the tears at before you got caught for cheating on your spouse? Where were the tears when you were just starting out being flirtatious with the individual? There were no tears then. You see, I don't have any sympathy for those kinds of people. Because they know exactly what they're doing. They are manipulative. 
And they need to be shown the true nature of what they've done and, and show them how serious it is. And it doesn't have to be just in, re- in reference to adultery. It can be, tr- that is true regarding any sin for the matter. We need to understand the ugliness of sin and what it does, not only to us within our own relationships with one another, right? David's sin murdered Uriah. I mean, if you just look, look at it, he got with Bathsheba. He saw a beautiful woman from the, from the rooftop and he said, okay, I want her, go get her. And then once she found out she was with child, okay, they have to, they have to fix this. And so his friend is murdered because of it. But ultimately, his sin wasn't against just Uriah. His sin wasn't against just Bathsheba. It was ultimately against God. And so long as he never changes and he never repents, he would always stand against God. So we're not looking to provide or to provoke the sorrow of the world. We want to provoke and, and, and get people triggered to, to provoke and provide for themselves the godly sorrow for their wickedness, for their unrighteousness. But let's continue on here. For behold, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear and what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. So when you avenge something, what have you done? You've gone out to correct it, to make it right. That's what these brethren had done. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Not that they were innocent of the charge of sin, but now they are blameless because they've truly repented. So we preach the gospel, we call people to repent, and we call for people and we urge them to be baptized in water for the remission of their sins. And we continue to do this over and over and over again. And the way that we preserve this reality is as if, as in the goal, goal of our faith, is to save souls, is through the constant preaching of the gospel. Go over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And look at what Paul says here. 2 Timothy 4, starting at verse 1, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in kingdom, preach... The word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. You see. We preach the same unadulterated gospel to the end. To cause repentance to come about. To cause people to be baptized into the name of Jesus for the remission of their sins. To cause people to live faithful lives in God. 
Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Having itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. This is one way we keep focused on our goal of saving souls is through the preaching of the gospel. Additionally, we appoint elders. Go over to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. Verse 17. Hebrews 13 verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not grief for this would be unprofitable for you. This is to help you. This is to benefit you. There's no hindrance. There's nothing bad that occurs with the appointment of elders. In fact, it's commanded, and we know that. That's why Titus was left in Crete, to set things in order and appoint elders in every church. <clears throat> then <clears throat> fall back a few chapters to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. We preach the gospel, we appoint elders, and we worship. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. But then there's a problem. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And sometimes this occurs because these things are not transpiring and taking place. And I'm not saying one's more important than the other. But when the gospel is not being preached and people are not being reminded of the lives that they are supposed to be living, and there's not good, solid leadership, and that there's not worship to be had with one another and to God ultimately, it's easy to just slip out, you know, Slip through the cracks is maybe one way we'd put it. And so we slip through the cracks and we go off and we live the life that we want to live because we're going unchecked. And that's what we need. We need people to put us in check so that we are doing things right. So if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? So you think... That those people under the old law, you think they were punished. You think their punishment was bad. If their punishment was just, which this is the same thing the Hebrew writer was saying back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. 
This is just another way of him saying this. How much worse is it going to be when you trample the Son of God under your feet and you ignore the gospel? It's going to be far worse than you could ever imagine. So we preach, appoint elders, we live our lives faithfully, and we worship together. So here are some times when we lose sight of what our real business ought to be and should be. When we begin focusing on trivial things, and I want to be very careful when I say this, but when the physical overshadows the spiritual, when that's all we're focused on, when we're more concerned with those who are physically sick than those who are spiritually sick, that's when we're already going a wrong direction. I'm not saying that those who are physically sick shouldn't be taken care of and that we shouldn't check on them. But there's a far bigger problem when someone's spiritually sick, when they are not right with God. We're talking about their destiny for eternity. We're talking about for forever. Our physical well-being, it comes and goes. Our spiritual life, we have one shot. There's no coming and going out of that. And so this is when we lose sight of that reality, when we are more concerned with the physical comforts of this life. So the, 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 the saving and, and the feeding of the physical body, maybe that's a better way of putting it, than the saving and the feeding of the spiritual body. See, I believe that's what Jesus was getting at over in John chapter 6. Let's go over to John chapter 6 real quick. We're almost done with the lesson. I appreciate your attention. John chapter 6. Drop down to verse 26. So this is after Jesus feeds the the 5,000. And uh, this group of people are still following him. But he recognizes that they are not following him for the right reason, you see. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Again, nobody's diminishing the reality that there are people who are hungry. And if there are people who are legitimately hungry, we ought to feed them. That doesn't do away with our individual responsibilities as Christians. But our number one goal, period, and this is a hill that we all should die on, is the saving of their souls. That was Jesus' goal. He said, my meat, my will is to do the Father's will. It's to do the will of Him who sent after me. You, just, you had good barbecue. I gave you a good steak. I gave you some hamburgers and hot dogs. We had coffee before Bible class and donuts. That's why you're coming. You see? Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. I don't care what food you eat here on this earth. 
your physical bodies will give out. You will die. We will all taste death. Don't labor for the food. Don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him the Father God has set His seal. And so look at that. Therefore they said to Him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? What did He say? Jesus answered and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Believe in Me. Have faith. You partake of Me, and you will have eternal life. We need to show people that we have partaken of Jesus in our lives. And show them the promises of of God, show them the blessings of God, show them the grace of God that's in your life. Because when public image overshadows the, the need to purify, right? Well, you know, that, that's going to create a black eye for the church. Let, let's just sweep it under the rug. Instead of purifying the church and getting rid of that problem, we're on the wrong road. When we are too busy trying to fit into the community and that overshadows fitting into the community of God, into God's scheme of redemption, we're on the wrong road. Our business is not the business of God. So let's not forget about our real business. Let's go over to final passage, First Peter chapter. I mean, First Timothy chapter four. First Timothy chapter four, and then the lesson will be yours. <clears throat> Drop all the way down to verse sixteen. Pay close attention. To yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Let's take heed to ourselves. Let us take heed to those, not only to ourselves, but to those who hear us. And let's show people that salvation is our number one goal. Not only for ourselves, not to look good, but to be good, to be made righteous, to be justified, to be sanctified, to be set apart. Who here tonight is willing to follow Jesus? If you're here, you've never rendered obedience to the gospel you're willing to confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and repent of your sins and be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of your sins, then the baptistry is ready. <clears throat> but maybe you've already done that. <clears throat> and you realize that salvation has not been your number one priority. The business that you've been a part of has not been God's business. If that's the case, then tonight is the night to rectify that. 
If you need to reestablish yourself in the kingdom of God and be reconciled back to God, we will help you any way we can. We'll pray for you. We'll pray with you. If you're subject to our public invitation, we invite you to come forward as together we stand and while we sing the invitation song.